How you doing there? How you doing? Welcome to Thursday's programme. All good in your world? Good, good, good. You can tweet to me right now between now and seven. It's at BBG Richie. That's how to reach me during the programme. I've got two brilliant guests lined up this afternoon on your Richie Allen radio show. So where else would you be at five o'clock? It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Now, Belinda De Lucy is a former member of the EU Parliament, former Brexit Party member of the European Union Parliament. A very interesting lady, a big free speech advocate, and is anti-lockdown and makes no bones about that. I like Belinda. I invited her on. She'll be with me this hour. Lots to talk about. She's also, uh, she has been engaging people around the whole issue of women's rights and safe spaces for women. So we'll talk to Belinda about some of that as well. You can follow her on Twitter. It's at Belinda De Lucy, D-E Lucy, Belinda De Lucy, right? So she's great. She'll be on with me a bit later on this hour. Now, Barack Obama has been speaking about aliens and about UFOs, unexplained flying objects. Very interesting stuff. I reached out to Bruce Fenton. Bruce is a pal of mine. He was on the programme last year. He's been featured in the British press. He's been on the Science Channel, the History Channel. Bruce is an author of very interesting books. What's going on with Disclosure? Well, Bruce will tell us in the second hour. Top man too. So it'll be it'll be an interesting old show. How you do? I know I already asked you, but how are you doing, eh? And uh, spring has even spring sprung, has sprung, spring, spring, has spring sprung even. Doesn't feel like it. Uh, there's no late spring feeling here. It's cold, very, very wet, very gloomy. No good at all. No good at all, I tells you. Anywho, before we get into the news, the, ser- the serious news, well, maybe this is serious news, I don't know. The Mail Online reported this afternoon that ministers, unnamed ministers, could use Tinder to boost vaccine rollout in the very young. Tinder is a dating app, and users might get a blue tick to show that they've been jabbed. Ministers are discussing plans to give vaccinated Tinder users a blue tick or a banner to show fellow love seekers that they are inoculated. Yeah! Right, right, Tinder. Now, I've never used Tinder because I've been in a relationship for, it'll be 19 years this July. So I've never had to use a dating app to find a date. I did it the old-fashioned way. I begged my missus about 70 times until she gave in and gave me a date. That's how it used to be. Stalked her. The things I did to get my missus to go for a drink with me, these days would have you banged up in, I don't know, strange ways for, for a time. Anyway, Tinder. Apparently you get on Tinder and you look at profiles of people and you swipe to the left if you don't like the look of what you're seeing. And you go through people until eventually you say you're interested in somebody and they say they're interested in you. Yeah. So they're desperate to get young people to have the vaccine. It will be expanded, the vaccine rollout, to people aged 34 and 35 from now 
from today. It has been expanded. And the government, in its wisdom, says, well, let's give vaccinated users a blue tick or a banner uh, so that, you know, other users will know that they've done their civic duty. Did you hear that, Tom? No. Could you repeat it? Because I, I can't believe my fucking ears. I can't either. I wonder which ministers have gotten involved. Girls on Tinder swiping through, guys. <laughs> well, he's, he's a grotesque-looking fat bastard, isn't he? But he's had the jab, so he loves his grandparents. Let's put him in the maybe pile. I wonder how long before kids are denied access to the apps they like if they haven't had the jab after being offered it. This is social crediting happening in front of your face, isn't it? Let's give Tinder users a blue tick if they've had the jab. That is, that is social crediting. That's a good person right there. Did their civic duty, had the jab. Which ministers are involved, eh? Penny Mordant, maybe? Gillian Keegan? <laughs> I'm giving the game away right there. About the two... Well, I'm not going to say any more because it, it, I'll just be called sexist. And, uh, and I am, and I don't need to advertise it anymore. Uh, the BBC, uh, an inquiry has found, an inquiry has found, that the BBC, wait for it, fell short of its high standards of integrity. <laughs> the truth! No, the, B- the BBC fell short of its high standards of integrity over Martin Bashir's 1995 interview with Lady D, as they say in France, Lady Diana, Princess Diana. So Bashir acted in a deceitful way and he faked documents to obtain the interview. He faked bank statements, didn't he, and showed them to her brother Earl Spencer. So the BBC's own internal probe into what happened back in 1996 was woefully ineffective according to the inquiry. Okay, why are we covering this? This is not normally the sort of thing you get into boldly. No, it isn't. But uh, speaking to Sky News this afternoon, Michael Grade, former BBC chairman, pulled no punches when talking about what's become of the old BBC. Former Beeb chairman Michael Grade, you will hear the interviewer first. How damaging do you think it is? Obviously, Martin Bashir's reputation is now damaged irreparably. What about the BBC's? I've read some comparisons describing this as the BBC's phone hacking moment. Also, uh, looking back into uh, the Hutton inquiry. Well... It's very damaging indeed, but the BBC is a great institution and most of its journalism uh, is extremely important in this country and and very respectable and proper. Uh, But what we don't know is how many more cover-ups there have been. These are the questions that go through your mind when you read the report. If they covered this up all these years, what else have they covered up? And it does put a question mark in your mind, which they're going to have to work very hard uh, uh, to overcome in in the coming years. It's shocking. The cover-up is shocking. I mean, how can the BBC accuse government ministers or civil servants or leaders of of public and private institutions of not being transparent and open with the public and accountable when they they as a corporation have behaved in this way that's the that's the damaging part of it yeah he asked a very good question there what else is the bbc covered up well we can help him out can't we brexit when i say brexit by the way i mean the bbc's shameful 
remain biased. September the 11th, the 7th of July bombings, the BBC's coverage of Syria, the BBC's part, it played a big part in staging fake chemical attacks that were blamed on Assad's government. Yeah, we could help him out all day long about the BBC. And to think that the BBC has a disinformation reporter called Mariana Spring. I said it before and I'll say it again. She doesn't have to leave the office to look for disinformation. Just look to your left, Mariana, then look to your right. The BBC is a lie factory. It's a factory of lies. I recommend, I highly recommend you read a book by David Sedgwick called The Fake News Factory. That's me there knocking stuff on my desk. The Fake News Factory, David Sedgwick, he's been on the programme, has David in the past. That's a brilliant read. The Beeb lies. The Beeb lies as a matter of course. The Beeb was set up to lie. It lies. So no surprises that one of its reporters lied to get an interview with Diana and no surprises that the BBC covered up those lies in the last 25 years. Of course not. Now this is very important. Nine minutes, nine minutes past five. Very important this. The NHS app, as you know, this week launched its so-called vaccine passport feature. You know this. The feature that allows, when you're travelling abroad, it allows the, the user to prove that they have received both doses of their COVID jab. But it's been discovered, and this is deadly serious now, that the information pertaining to your vaccination status is not the only data the NHS app will be storing on you. All credit goes to a Professor Erke Boyton. That's his name, Erke Boyton. He's the head of the uh, De Montfort University Computer Science and Informatics School. Informatics School, yes. Say it right, Baldy. Erica Boynton, De Montfort University Computer Science and Informatics School. He's been digging into the app to see what else it's storing on you. And be jeepers, it's collecting everything on you. It's collecting your registration plate number for your car. Your national insurance number who you work for, who your family is, who they are, your lifestyle, your ethnicity, biometric and genetic for identification information, whether you've committed a crime or not, whether you've been reported for a crime, even if you haven't been tried and convicted for it. Will, will they ever, those who walk amongst us, obeying every diktat, that comes from number 10. Will they ever wake up to the fact that this is not about an effing virus? Have the NHS app, will you? Will you download it to your phone? Eh, why, why, why? Have you had your vaccines? No, I haven't, I haven't. But let's pretend I have. Yes, I have. I've had me two doses. Well, download the app then and you can show people you've had your two doses and that's all there is to it. Lying. I'm not going to swear. It's not the only info. Everything about me will be gathered by that app. That app will swallow up every bit of data that it can find on me using the information that I input into my own phone or my own tablet, but also scanning, of course, using the microphone features and the camera features and everything else. It's astonishing. Now, Julia Hartley Brewer wanted to get into this with a woman called Silky Carlo. She's the current director of Big Brother Watch, which obviously is a civil liberties organisation or an, an organisation which looks out 
for our civil liberty. Silky Carlo is very unimpressed with this development, speaking, as I said, to Julia Hartley Brewer. Well, um, I completely share your concern and worry about this. I'm extremely worried about it. Um, And if the question is, is there a big plan for COVID passes? Yes, there absolutely is. I mean, it's just irrefutable now. And I actually think it's been in place for many, many, many months. Um, And the government has been barefaced lying about it. And this is a really... Uh, this is a this is a point that cannot be escaped. You know, we have ministers on record saying um, last year, at the end of last year in November, there are absolutely no plans for vaccine passports. Um, it's not going to happen. And at that time, they were actually signing contracts yeah. for tech companies to develop them. Multi-million pound contracts. Yeah. Absolutely. And where we are today is that uh, we're still in this kind of twilight zone where the government is pretending that they are having a review, they're thinking about it very seriously, Michael Gove is scratching his head. And uh, meanwhile, the COVID uh, vaccine status function has been put onto the general NHS app. And if you read the privacy notice, it says, this data will be useful for further aspects of unlocking as they arise, e.g. attendance at domestic events. Very important that. She's absolutely bang on. The, the the literacy, it isn't literacy, obviously, because it's on the app, right? But it states it pretty clearly. This is not about enabling you to leave the country. It's bad enough that you might have to be vaccinated to leave your country. That's bad enough. But th- th- for them to lie and say that Michael Gove is looking into whether or not this can be deployed domestically, it's a gargantuan lie because they're already doing it. They're already doing it. it it's in the, the documentation the online documentation. This is a matter of constitutional significance. We have never had IDs in Britain. We don't have internal passports. We don't want internal health passports. Um, The Conservative government knows that a lot of their own backbenchers are up in arms about this. In fact, there's well over the the amount needed to uh, execute a rebellion if, if needed. Well, you know, there might very well be enough Tory backbenchers and maybe enough Labour MPs to stand up against this or to come out against it and to vote against it inevitably. But whether they will or not is another thing. Do you trust the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, John Ashworth? Honestly, Jess Phillips? Honestly, they're going to vote against it, are they? The Labour Party. I wouldn't uh, hold my breath. This conversation went on. It's very interesting. Again, so... The vaccine passport, again, my mum downloaded it, ready to go on holiday. Yes, one of those naughty amber list people. Oh, isn't she terrible um, after her double jab um, to prove that she's got her double vaccine uh, and so she can get into to France. Um, but now it's been updated and these apps, most people just click on, yeah, it just update automatically. It's updated to to add a lot of other things. Now, um, special category data has been added. Uh, so information relating to the individual's physical or mental health condition, not not just related to vaccinations, information relating to the family. This is what's written on the app. I'm not making this stuff up. Information relating to the family of the individual and the yeah. individual's lifestyle and social circumstances yeah. is on the app. Information which relates to the ethnic origin of the individual. Information relating to the genetic biometric details where processed to uniquely identify an individual and criminal convictions or alleged criminal behaviour. Or alleged. This NHS app is going to contain those details. Biometric and genetic information for identification. Whether you've been accused of a crime, your lifestyle, your family. Now, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to get angry. I was angry today when I learned about this. 
not not because I didn't see it coming, of course I saw it coming, but angry that people will just blindly follow this and won't care. This is something that somebody should go to jail for. So they say, right, get your vaccines, you idiots, and so let's say some idiots go and get their vaccines and put download the app onto your phone and the only thing the app is for is to prove you've been vaccinated. Now, they were very clear about this. So now we know, thanks to the professor, Professor Boynton, that they're gathering all this information on us. That's a crime. That's a crime. It has to be a crime, that. Where are the Metropolitan Police investigating the government and the cabinet to find out how this is possible? That you can tell people... Download it, vaccine, no big deal. You can go to France, go to Spain, whatever. And not tell people that you're keeping information on them about their family, their ethnic origin, their, their, their licence plate number on their car, who employs them, their national insurance number, the sort of things they get up to in their spare time. Honestly, really. What will it take for people to realise that this isn't and never was about a virus? with a 99.7% survivability rate. When will it dawn on people that this is the greatest attack? This is ultimately, this is the third, as the Americans would say, we're into the third quarter now. Time running out in the third quarter. This is their big play, this. When will people accept that this is not about a virus? It's astonishing, isn't it? Let's hear a little bit more. What the hell has any of that got to do with proving whether you've had two jabs or not? Well, nothing, right? But but Brewer won't go far enough here. It's it's so alarming. It's so disturbing. Um, I mean, I'm still actually in somewhat uh, a level of, of, of disbelief about this, and we're trying to check this out uh, with our with our legal team because it's not clear. Uh, where that data is coming from. Are they just using boilerplate language on, on this previous notice? I don't know. But that's the problem. I mean, this is all being done by the back door with very little transparency. And it's really alarming. If they really are going to be collecting that kind of data, then, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we've just got our head in our hands. But the thing is, also, this app is a direct link into your medical records. Yep. And you are being all, expected... All of your it. medical records, not not just Absolutely. your vaccine status. And apart from this programme here, your Richie Allen show, and... Julia Hartley Brewer this morning, nobody's discussing this. Now, the BBC, ITV, Good Morning Britain, uh, the various BBC talk shows throughout the day, Channel 5, right, the Loose Women programmes, I don't know if that was on today, they know this and they choose not to report it. Someone should go to jail for this. And I'll leave that there for the moment. It's uh, 19 minutes past five o'clock. This is your Richie Allen show, live from Salford. Let's move on. Jeffrey Barrett is a director of COVID-19 genomics for the Wellcome Institute. Dr. Jeffrey Barrett, if you please. He was on BBC Radio 5 Live earlier this morning. Nicky Campbell, the presenter, asked him, when will this be over? When will this paradigm change? When will this paradigm shift? The answer might not surprise you in the least. Well, I very much hope that in two years' time, let's say, Life will be uh, something close to back to normal of 2019. Um, I suspect we'll probably be doing annual vaccinations of this virus for the foreseeable future, trying to understand how to 
update them to make sure they continue to be effective. In order to get to this picture I'm painting, it'll be very, very important that the high income world collectively works to ensure vaccines are distributed as equally as possible around the whole world. Because frankly, if the virus is transmitting and mutating somewhere else, it is relevant and dangerous to everyone. And so it's very important that we do that. But if we can do that, um, you know, I think we might be in a place where perhaps in the winter season, people wear face masks on the train and it's not judged as an odd thing, but a kind of polite thing. So small differences like that. But overall, I'm, I'm hopeful that the vaccinations can really bring us out of this very strange world we've been living in for the last year and a half. That's a great detective once said, uh, just one more question. It just how easy, how easy will it be to update the vaccines and make sure they continue to be effective? Or is that easier said than done? Or is it easier done than said? Because I didn't say Well, that. I think, uh, so uh, I'm not an expert at making the vaccines, but from what I've read, it, this is another way in which we're very lucky that, that some of the newer technologies, um, one can update the sort of package in the vaccine very, very easily. And in fact, some of the manufacturers have already made versions of the vaccine um, that target some of these new variants and they're beginning to do trials and consider how to roll them out. And so we don't know yet because we haven't yet tried a kind of new booster deployed at scale. But uh, again, I think it's it's we're kind of lucky that it might well be pretty straightforward to make vaccines that are updated and work really well. Mm. So you'll be wearing masks, eh? Every winter for the foreseeable future and getting booster jabs. None of that, as I said, will come as any surprise to you. Uh, naturally enough, Campbell doesn't challenge any of Updated us. and work really well. You are, as ever, a wonderfully interesting guest. Yeah. Thank you very much uh, for coming on this morning. Campbell's tongue is so far up his arse, it's coming out his mouth, you know. Rather than challenge any of it and say, well, why would we be getting booster jabs? How do you know we'd need them? Why? It seems that the so-called vaccines, which aren't really vaccines, are doing well against the variants. And why would we need to be wearing masks in the future? No, none of that. Thanks for coming on. You're brilliant as ever. Oh, you're amazing. Oh, you're incredible. Lovely to be getting your expertise and your insight. Nikki Campbell there. It's mental. And on Irish television on Monday, a woman who writes for the Irish Times or the Sunday Times, her name is Brenda Power. Speaking of the new normal, here's Brenda Power. Well, I, I can't see myself ever wanting to, to crowd into a pub and stand side by side with complete strangers mm -hmm. in the sort of way that we felt was acceptable and even enjoyable when it clearly wasn't. It, it, was, it wasn't. It wasn't acceptable. It was not acceptable, nor was it enjoyable to be in pubs with our mates having the crack. And stand side by side with complete strangers mm -hmm. in the sort of way that we felt was acceptable and even enjoyable when it clearly wasn't. <laughs> it, it was, though. I, I remember it. It seems like such a long time ago. But I remember packing into pubs with the lads after watching Salford Red Devils play rugby league or Salford City play football or soccer. I remember it. It was fantastic. The pressing of the flesh. The crack with the lads. Meeting up with the women later on. It was fucking fantastic. What a crazy... No, don't, Richie. Be nice. Be nice. Play nice. Are they getting paid, these people? Are they? I don't know. Um, we might be on the verge of a third wave of coronavirus, according to Sage. I'm not making this up. Andrew Hayward, infectious disease expert at University College London. He said he's very concerned about the Indian variant because it spreads quickly. 
He said we shouldn't waste the opportunity offered by vaccination. We shouldn't allow people to travel widely. He was asked by BBC Breakfast if we are at the beginning of the third wave. And he said, I think we are. Jesus Christ, oh my God. And then you had Peter Drobach, global health infectious disease expert. He went on Sky News and he kind of agrees with him. And we might need more national lockdowns. The answer is it's too early to know for sure. And there's a lot that we don't know about this variant. But I do think that that is a real risk. Right now, we're in a race against time. All evidence suggests that uh, this B1617 variant is more transmissible than the Kent variant that caused, um, uh, you know, the surge that we faced back in January and in February. And we are seeing cases uh, of this new variant approximately doubling every week over several weeks now um, in 144 areas across the country. There is a real risk that we could see a third wave uh, and, and need to even, you know, face a third national lockdown, potentially. Um, third national lockdown, potentially, he said. Jesus. Do you think at that stage, the unwashed will say, I'm not having it, and they'll rear up, as we say back home in God's country. Do you think at that stage, if they tell people again to completely close down, do you think at that stage people will say no? Or will they just go along with it? I suppose if they borrow some money from the magic money tree, from the faraway tree, you know, billions to pay people in furlough, I'm sure they'll just go, OK, we'll stay at home again and watch Netflix and watch football played to empty stadiums with no atmosphere and gorge on processed food and drink ourselves nearly to death. Yeah, we'll do that. Just give us the money. And we'll do it. Third wave, Peter, throw back. Um, if we don't get on top of this. So what needs to happen right now is accelerating the vaccination campaign, surge testing in hotspots as is happening. <laughs> um, but we also need to think very carefully about our strategy for opening oh. up the travel. We I know. I know, I know, I know. Shall I take a tune and get my first guest on today? Before we, uh, before I do that, let me remind you that Bruce Fenton, who's a big cheese, is Bruce. He's also a lovely guy in the the study of ufology and and contact and disclosure. Bruce is um, he's been on. He he runs ancientnews.net, which is well worth a look. Is uh, is that website? Bruce has been in all the newspapers in this country. He's been on the Science Channel and the History Channel. And I invited Bruce this morning to come on and talk about the things uh, said by Barack Obama. He was on, I think, James Corden's program on American television, late night TV, and Obama was talking about things that unexplained flying objects, UFOs. And he said that there's footage and records of objects in the skies. We don't know what they are. We can't explain their movements or their trajectories. And that's interesting. The news has gone with that today. I thought we'd take it different. We'll, we'll, we'll just talk about something different. So I invited Bruce on, lovely bloke, and he'll be with us in hour two. Here's music from Zaz, Paris, Sarah, Toujours, Paris. Uh, and coming up then, in a moment, Belinda de Lucy. Right, music from Zaz. It's exactly 5.30, the Richie Allen Show, live from Salford, where it's uh, raining cats and dogs right now. 
Is it ever any other way, eh? I know it's the most boring subject in the world. It is late May, though. We expect it to be a bit better now, don't we? Don't we? Do you know, I wish I was speaking with my first guest about something a bit more cheery. Because, like me, she was thrilled, I would imagine. Well, I know she was thrilled when the UK voted to leave the European Union back in 2016. And when we kind of half left um, 18 months ago... Uh, there was lots to be optimistic about, maybe lots to be positive about, maybe. But a lot has happened since then. Uh, she's a former member of the EU Parliament for uh, the Brexit Party, or a Brexit Party MEP. She also served as a member of the EU Women's Commission. Uh, she's a free speech advocate, which is fantastic. You'd have seen her many times on UK television news. Let's welcome to the programme Belinda DeLucy. Belinda, thanks for your time today. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me on. Such I'm a pleasure. Delighted to have you on. Um, yeah, not to be not to be depressing. Let's not be depressing. But <laughs> I can imagine, you know, late 2019, people like yourself, myself, you know, pro Brexit people wanted to leave. I, I wish my own country uh, back home would leave the mm. European Union. But anyway, everything was on <laughs> the up and up, and 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 now we've spent the last 14 months. Um, with this virus and everything that came with it, lockdown. And I invited you on because, like myself, you're not too thrilled about lockdown and lockdowns and lockdown after lockdown. How's it been for you the last 14 months? It's been very strange. I had hoped after we had got Brexit over the line, uh, because for us that was the biggest uh, win. Uh, it was not the perfect Brexit. It was just getting it over the line. We had faced so much opposition so much from powerful the powerful muscle of remain had been on us for so many years we we were almost in shock that we'd actually uh, finally got it through even though it was a bit of a a mess and then suddenly to have then covid come down and and distract and take away all the attention from the sort of loose ends that we wanted to tie up from Brexit was, was another thing entirely. Um, and the COVID thing, it proved two things to me, really. One, thank God we left the EU project when we did. Um, I think there's no question it saved lives and will continue to do so. Uh, just having the flexibility and efficiency of being a nimble country acting independently, um, you know, has, has, has been a godsend. Um, but the other thing is, is how fear, again, is trying to control the people. Um, we had it, of course, over the Brexit years, the Project Fear, the Yellowhammer Report, Armageddon, life was going to end if we left the EU project, peace was going to end, it was, people weren't going to be able to get pregnant or drugs, yeah. you know, life as we knew it was going to end. <laughs> yeah. And then we suddenly shifted to that all happening with COVID, unless you followed the restrictions, you know, unless you lock down, the NHS is going to be destroyed. And then when the NHS was safe, unless you lock down, you know, the world is going to fall apart and all these variants are going to end up killing all of you. And it was the same way fear had controlled us since 2016. And I recognized the pattern and it made me feel rather anxious. And, and I came from a very chill perspective. I, I was very privileged in finding lockdown bearable. I had children around me and a home and food on the table and and for me, I had no right to judge anyone who didn't find lockdown bearable. Um, and so it was kind of, you know, I just got on with it and and felt for people who couldn't bear it, never judged them, was quite happy for people to walk around without masks and do yeah. whatever they wanted to do. 
Um, but this fear, again, is being peddled, peddled to try and control the sort of plebs that had got away during 2016 yeah. and run riot with Brexit. They sort of wanted to put us back in our pen. So we began to be spoon-fed again. Maybe this time it wasn't from the EU, but spoon-fed again by the establishment and people in power. And I, I'm just not having it right now. Not now the vaccine's out. Not well, this is it now. Down. These are the things I wanted to chat with you about, just generally, because like like yourself, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not going to get into any of that. What we, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it, it must be very frustrating for somebody who campaigned against Project Fear. And of course, you were doing that alongside people like Boris Johnson and, and, and Michael Gove and other Brexiteers. And they would have been very critical of the fear tactics of the European Union and its supporters. And those same men, it's mostly men, it must be said, are employing the same tactics about a virus. I think I had it myself, Belinda, back in January of last year, whatever it is. And it was pretty, yeah. it was nasty now. You, you know, as somebody who, I'm, I'm a healthy guy, I'm a non-smoker, uh, and I'm fit, I run, I keep myself well. It was a nasty thing. But we know by their own data and I think Chris Whitty, the medical officer, has said it many times, the great majority of people are not affected by it. It is potentially dangerous for seniors who might have comorbidities. So all of this fear over something that doesn't affect the vast majority of us, why do you think it is that Johnson and Gove and everybody else have kind of jumped on that bandwagon and supported the draconian measures? Having you know, fought against them in the European Union. Why, why does that happen, do you think? Again, I think it's political. I think they're terrified of the next election and Labour being able to wave the banner that Tory, Tories killed the vulnerable. Tories, you know, let the pandemic rip through those most at risk. And, and that they're worried about headlines. They're worried about polls, about how the media is going to spin this. And, and really their priority should first and foremost be with what's best for the people. But unfortunately, in this day and age, it's more about image and polls and the next election and the headlines. And I found it very, very difficult to swallow all this, this new fear about the variants, this, that and the other. And the goalposts keep moving because I'm, I'm actually quite happy accepting restrictions that sound reasonable. I may not believe in them, but sound reasonable we're far beyond that now you know 80 percent of people who have covid don't even have symptoms it's that's that, right it, it's that harmless and the vulnerable have been vaccinated now i also think if i'm being really honest there are a lot of people near power who are risk averse the same lot were, were around power during brexit they hate change they want to sit in their comfort zone and they project their fear and their panic and their worst-case scenario obsession um, onto the public without understanding the consequences that that has. This worst-case scenario thing is a is a new uh, a way of thinking from 2016. It was always, what is the very worst that can happen, and let's project that onto the people. It's very unhealthy. It, you know, COVID is something to be understood, not to be frightened about. It's not scientific um, anyway, it, is it, yeah. Belinda? That's not a scientific approach. I've heard many, I think it's only really talk radio and, and my programme here. We're the only ones who've actually had on scientists from established and, and, and respectable universities who disagree with lockdown. And they, yeah. they, they've all said what you've said there, this risk-averse thing is crazy. You don't plan for the worst possible scenario. That's not science. There's no scientific basis to that. And yet they've done it. And you know the thing that kills me? The average age of a COVID death 
is 82. That's a fact. That's going by their own statistics. And yet, prior to the virus being with us, I think the average life expectancy or the life expectancy for you and me, I think, is about 81 and a half. It's crazy, isn't it? There's no getting over that. I know. It was all political. As soon as the Western world started panicking about COVID, Boris had a choice. Either he joins the overcautious, panicky response that the West had had, or he went on uh, on his own like Sweden. And remember, at the beginning, he did try herd immunity. All of that made so much sense to me, protect the vulnerable and just let the let the young crack on. Yeah. But then I think he got panicked and was told, if you do this, you'll lose the next election. This is a political suicide mission. You you have to go with the flow and join the other Western leaders. So it is political. But I also feel for Boris Johnson because, in a way, it's despite many flaws, um, he is so much better than any other alternative we had. I mean, look at Labour. It's more lockdown, more lockdown, more, more lockdown. lockdown. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and so we only had Boris, and and he he had COVID himself. He had a new baby. He was dealing with Brexit. Suddenly, a pandemic. What was he going to do? And instead of taking it on the chin, he outsourced all responsibility to the scientists. I won't be <laughs> as kind now, Belinda. I I wouldn't be as kind to him as as you are. But I totally respect yeah. your opinion. It, it doesn't mean I'm right. I wouldn't be as kind to him because this over reliance on this group of sage scientists. You know, many of them, we've we've learned in recent days, many of them on this panel of 30-something people don't actually really have any medical qualifications. Yeah. And, and, and these are one-track ponies like lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. And you must have been shocked, like, like most of us were, to learn that last year they employed people to educate them as to how they could use psychological scare tactics against us. I mean, this is the UK, this is not... North Korea, what, what, what the hell is going on? Why would they want to do that? And I'll tell you what I think. This is my conspiracy yeah. theory for the day. I get one every day, right? Yes. <laughs> my, 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 what I think is, they've, and I don't mean Boris Johnson specifically. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't mean wider society, but maybe the forces behind politics, maybe. Maybe yeah. they've seen the virus as an opportunity to to do things maybe that they've long kind of wanted to do and I'll give you a quote there's a lovely lady from um, the west of Ireland called Fanula Ni Elon. she's a very very yeah. respected lawyer you've probably heard Fanula's name works for the United Nations and at the beginning of this she said my big concern she said is is that all of these rules now and regulations and knockdowns these plans were sitting in a desk somewhere and they have been for years waiting for the excuse to use them. And I kind of feel that. I feel that there, you know, maybe there's been an agenda for a long time to change the way we live. Listen, I don't know what you think of that, but the way things are going, I'm open-minded, you know? But why, what's the motivation? You see, this this is what I, I I get where you're coming from, but then, then why? What's in it for them? I mean, the economy goes down, business shuts, there's more unrest on the street. Yeah. These restrictions are not um, healthy for any society, no. don't bode well for the future. So as much as I do think that a lot of the restrictions were based on no evidence whatsoever and more panic and the projection of fear from scientists, I do think the, the idea that the government is using uh, COVID to restrict and destroy economy and mental health and all this sort of thing, yeah. I don't get. But one thing I do think is, is true is the climate change agenda. That's the sort of climate, sorry, the climate agenda yeah, that Boris yeah. is suddenly attached to. Now, now, they well may use this situation to start the Great Reset yeah. for the climate change. And that I would be wary about. Well, fair play to you for mentioning the Great Reset. 
I mean, this is real. We we've seen the 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 website. We've seen the things proposed by Klaus Schwab. We know that pretty much most of the political heavyweights on the left and on the right are on board with this great reset, this fourth industrial revolution. That's where I think a lot of it does go. I think there are plans. You see, I don't blame. It's not that I don't blame Johnson. I don't believe that Johnson or Starmer. These these agendas, they're not Starmer's agendas, they're not Johnson's agendas, but the, the kind of spheres of influence, the think tanks outside of governments and opposition yeah. parties that feed into them, they're very much on board with all of this climate. Because I think that you're not going to believe this, um, uh, uh, Belinda. I'm an old lefty me. I'm supposed to be yeah. on board with this uh, climate nonsense. But of course, I know it's yeah. nonsense. I, yeah. I, and I see the signs they're taking some of what's happened in lockdown and they're saying, well, look, you know, we can take some of this and we can we, we can take some of the successes and use those to get us to carbon net zero by 2050. It's Absolutely. insane. It's yeah, insane. And it's, it's the people who have the least that will be affected most yeah. by new climate policy. You know, people who have barely anything but use a car to drive to work will suddenly be told, no, sorry, you, you can't drive anymore. You have to find another way. It yeah. is desperately uh, discriminatory against the poor, um, the sort of more extreme climate policies that they want to use to decarbonize, you know, whatever. They, but it's, it's, it is dangerous the more extreme it becomes. And Boris needs to be careful because they, he may have a majority now, but it will quit. It's only votes that are lent. They will quickly leave him. And another benefit, obviously, of Brexit is that our government is so much more accountable. They can't blame the EU for anything anymore. No, not anymore. So whatever Boris chooses to do now he will be held directly accountable at the next election by the electorate we have more power in our hands at the ballot box than we have you know since the 1970s so i have hope that we can that that fear of the judgment of the electorate will hopefully shape policy maybe maybe not now but at least a few years down the line so there'll be more representative of how the majority of people feel. You want, listen, I'd love you to be right, and, and maybe you will be right, but you look <laughs> across the aisle, and you said it yourself earlier, what, whatever silly COVID policies and ridiculous climate policies the Tories are are putting out there, the other side wants to take those and run with them, but do them even harder. At yeah. the moment, it's yeah. it's insane, isn't it? I, I, that's what I don't understand. Let me remind our our listeners: Belinda De Lucy is our guest. Belinda is a former Brexit Party MEP. Lovely to have her on the program today. I wanted to ask you: you don't have to get into this if you don't want. We can speak generally, mm-hmm. maybe. But you 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 you're a mum of four girls. How yeah. has how have they navigated the last twelve months? I ask that because. There have been some dreadful reports in the last week about the impact of lockdown on children's well-being. And that's obviously a major issue. How have your own girls managed to navigate it? Well, I think, I mean, children are pretty resilient. Um, You know, if you think about kids in, in the sort of whole evacuation during the war and kids during pandemics they tend to be quite resilient and 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 push through but the biggest fear i have for the young is this massive breach of trust that adults are telling them be frightened adults are saying to them even though you're not at risk of anything and you're actually not really transmitting it you know covid to anyone else either at your young age we are going to project our fear and panic and fragility onto the next generation of young this is the thing I see, you know, actually having a harmful impact that the nervousness and fragility and panic of teachers, of police, of people in government 
is being projected onto a generation that isn't even at risk of the virus. Um, so, so children are thinking, why, why are adults making me frightened of something I shouldn't be frightened of? Yeah. And there is in that a, a quite a serious breach of, of trust that, that hadn't been there before. So, so how can and children trust adults now with policy, law, this sort of thing, if, if they've had this experience of kind of being, how can I put it, the, the punch bag or the, the sponges that have had to absorb all this adult fear? Um, because children aren't frightened of COVID. Why should they be? Yeah, it uh, they're, they're, they're certainly not the, the biggest transmitters. Um, and when schools reopened across Europe, there was no spike in COVID. No. And these poor kids have just had to do all their sort of assessments and exams this year with masks and stuffy rooms. And, and, and my 16-year-old thinking, you know, mom, I don't understand why I'm being made to wear a mask. And even if I don't wear a mask, the teachers point me out in front of all my friends and make a real example of me. So I, in the end, I just end up wearing a mask because it's less embarrassing. This, this kind of, that whole thing I have an issue with. And I think we are to blame, well, not, not us because we're against that, but adults projecting their fear and fragility onto the young generation is going to cause a lot of problems in the future. The school, Belinda, is bang out of order by singling out your daughter because the government made it clear while the advice was that the secondary school students did wear the masks, they made it clear that they weren't compulsory. So the school is out of... And you're not the first parent to tell me that. I do phone-ins occasionally and I get inundated with callers. And some of some parents have come on to me to say that, you know, their child said, I don't want to wear the mask. And mm-hmm. they were asked to sit alone at lunchtimes and stuff yeah. like... The schools should not be doing that. No, but they do because teachers... And I, and I have respect for teachers, but I do think a, a large portion of teachers have behaved very badly over COVID with the unions and using this as a politi- political stick to beat the Tories with and sort of made other teachers panic and fear children without masks. And again, they project that onto the children. So, of course, teenagers don't want to be the odd one out where the teacher goes, explain to me why you're not wearing a mask. You know, what, what, why, what makes you so different? Of course, teenagers are going to just end up then submitting. And actually, I don't think that's a great lesson for them in life. Yes. You know, to do something they don't want to do with no evidence behind it, just because an adult tells them to do it. That's you know, it's, it's, it's wrong. And that's, and the genie, unfortunately, is out of the bottle. So when you make children frightened, it's very hard to make them unfrightened. Well said, Belinda. Sense. It makes perfect sense. Time is flying. We've got Belinda for about 10 more minutes. I'm delighted that she's on yeah. the programme today. Belinda DeLucy <laughs> is on. You can follow her on Twitter. It's simply at Belinda DeLucy, uh, former Brexit Party MEP, uh, expressing concerns about the negative effects of lockdowns, the arbitrary rules that were brought in, the impact on children. Very interesting here. Some of, some of my listeners, um, because of, I've had as many scientists, many epidemiologists on the programme, program who you know they've they've gone very they've come out very strongly against lockdowns and even the necessity of the vaccine I'm going to ask you about that in a minute because I love the fact that you're you're, you're for free speech and for um, freedom of choice I love that you have a different opinion I think than I do about the vaccine but what I like about what, what I love about you meeting you in the last few days online is that you are um, adamant that everybody should be heard and I love that but um, a, a lot of my listeners are like you know oh Belinda's not going far enough uh, you know sure she sees there's more to this and all of that listen everybody has the right to their opinion we don't impose on people what we think or how we feel it's as simple as that I, I i've been i've been stunned in recent months at how far 
you know, people I would have read for years in, in the Telegraph, people like James Dellingpole, who comes on this programme. You know, James has gone, you know, he, he's fully convinced that there's an agenda here to radically transform the way we live. He articulates that very well. It's nice to get all points of view. You're not anti-vaccine. I know you're not. Um, I'm not anti-vaccine. I, I, I never have been. I'll tell you where I am and then I'll shut up and get out of your way. Um, I've, I've never seen such an attempt by a state to compel people to have a an intervention, which I know, and I know this because I'm an intelligent man, I know it's not necessary. It's not necessary for me. It's not necessary for children. I don't think it's necessary for for anybody. I know you'll disagree with this and fair enough. Uh, I've ne- never seen anything like it. And in recent days, I want to thank you for this, by the way. In recent days, journalists and television personalities are trying to turn the country against those of us who have declined and will decline the intervention. It's spooky. Um, it's scary, the, the, the turn against those people. And I admire you because you see it differently than me. But I admire you for standing up and saying, no, this is outrageous. You shouldn't be demonising people for not wanting to have uh, the, the vaccine or the intervention. What, what do you think, uh, Belinda? I think it's, it's one of the most frightening tactics the government and the media, the political and the media class have used for a really long time to bully people into taking an injection that has not had years and years of testing. That for me is one of the worst, like I, I, I can't remember in my lifetime when I found something so troubling. I am pro-vaccine. I always have done. I always have been. I've taken vaccines whenever they're offered. But that's my opinion and my choice. The idea that someone should feel compelled, pressured, bullied into having something stuck in their arm that they don't want, for me, is the biggest break of contract between uh, those with power and money and those who have nothing. They have no columns in the Guardian to be able to put their point of view across about the vaccine. They, they, they have no million followers. These people with power and platform bullying others to take the vaccine makes me feel quite ill and unnerved. And, and I think the worst uh, consequence of this is that now I'm thinking, right, well, stuff them. You know, this is what happens when you feel bullied into taking something, you almost don't want to take it more. Right. So this, this the whole tactic will backfire. I think it's frightening turning people against each other. They try to do this with Brexit as well. But not this is darker because this is about a human bo- human having a right over their own body. And if they had just made the vaccine attractive and been able to sell it themselves on the positives of the vaccine, then that's fine. But they didn't. Bullying and pressurizing and demonizing those who don't want to take the vaccine. That's me switched off. I I feel really protective over people who don't want the vaccine now. You see, this is how I used to see politicians when I was growing up. I got into political journalism when I was very young. Listening to you, this is how I used to see politicians that I could engage with. You know, we might see the world differently. You and I see the Israel-Palestine thing differently. We're not going to talk about that, but we see it differently. We would, wouldn't we? I'm an old lefty, so I have my um, opinions on that. I love old lefties. There are loads of them in the Brexit party. Well, there are, aren't they? See, we could could speak for hours about this, and I used to speak for hours. You You know the old socialists, the old real socialists? socialists were more concerned about unfettered immigration in the 70s and 80s than anybody else. And now people who call themselves leftists, you know, are calling those people racist because they're concerned about the impact on their own ability to get a job and to maintain a job. We could talk all day about that, Belinda. On, on On the vaccines, 
I won't have one for the simple reason, by their own admission, it's not a traditional vaccine. It doesn't prevent you becoming ill. And because it's rushed to market and because it's still an ongoing trial and because of the bullying. So I say no, uh, not under any circumstances. But of course, like yourself, as somebody who's genuinely, because again, they've overused, they've stolen the word liberal. They've robbed the word. As somebody who is liberal, I say, well, look, you do what you want to do and I'll respect that, but I ain't going to have it. So, And I really respect you for sticking up for people in the last few days, um, you know, who've, who are coming under fire because um, they're just saying I don't want it. And you get all these ad hominem attacks too, don't you, Belinda? I mean, listen, mm-hmm. I'm talking to the Queen, right? When you were campaigning for Brexit, you must have had a million ad hominem attacks on you and on your colleagues, so you know? You could write a book. You could write a book, Oh, right? I, I was worse than scum. I was worse than a Nazi. And all I was was like a mum sitting at home watching the telly saying, hang on a minute, this isn't right. And then suddenly you're public enemy number one. And I've seen that happen with people who even dare to question the COVID restriction. And, and why, why are they, what are they so frightened about unless they're hiding something? This is why it's such a silly tactic. It's making people not trust yeah. the restrictions because so much is manipulated and made up and peddled to frighten people. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, it's a cheeky question. I think you've given the answer or you're undecided. <laughs> so you're undecided. Are you about the vaccine? Uh, no, I'm very pro-vaccine. I've had it. Um, I, I had COVID last year. I had very strong antibodies. There was absolutely no reason for me to take the vaccine whatsoever. But I've had it because I, I am a re- I'm really love science and I love the human ability to create vaccines. And actually, historically, the vast majority, by far, vaccines have been absolutely fine, whether they've been tested for a long period or not. So I've taken it um, and and I feel like I've kind of... I don't mind about it, but people who mind about taking the vaccine, they should have the absolute right to not only say no, but be respected for it and allowed to do whatever they like. We're safe. Fair if enough. you're vaccinated, why would you care if someone else wasn't vaccinated? Let them get on with life. Absolutely right. Now, I, I'm not going to get into injuries uh, because I, <laughs> I, I respect you, so I'm not going to get into that. I have, I have great respect for you. I'm, I'm a bit worried about injuries not being reported, and but I'm not going to get into that because I'm not. Because no. uh, I get to, this, this is my bully pulpit, basically. I get to say what I want every day day and uh, without too many people opposing me so it's good that you're on doing that but I did want to ask you one thing in the three minutes we have left Um, you're a feminist it's fair to say and uh, I like the fact that you've um, you've thrown your 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 uh, opinions you, you've thrown your your uh, experience into this whole crazy lunacy this has come up in the last two to three years safe spaces for women being invaded by men who identify as women or or so-called trans women this i used to laugh at this when this begun i don't mean laugh now in terms of that i was dismissive of what was going on but i didn't see how serious this really was and how much of an impact it really might have on women, but I'm seeing it now through trans uh, trans people in sports, through safe spaces. This is a big issue, this, isn't it? It's it's very frightening. There was was no conflict or beef, really, between trans women and women a few years ago. And then suddenly the gender extremists took over and wanted to overreach into every female safe space and force women to accept males in their vulnerable, naked, refuge, sports spaces. And I would say one thing, what kind of person would fight for males to have access to, to, to vulnerable women's spaces, number it's one? Me. Because this is, a, this is about self-ID as well, that a man just has to declare that he is a woman to, be, to have access to all our protections. I find it um, misogynistic. I find it very dark and sinister. I think you have on one end of the trans spectrum, very decent people, trans women who just want to get on with their lives. 
And then you have at the other end of the spectrum, very strange, fetishy, uh, uh, sexual deviants, let's put it that way, who want to abuse this whole gender ideology to start accessing spaces that they really don't belong in. Um, and women and girls are being thrown under the bus. In fact, for me, just saying that, you know, I, I, I could be at risk of losing my job. Um, you know, women are demonized all the time for daring to stand up for their legal protections because males need to feel validated as being women. It's like a topsy-turvy crazy world and I'm not standing for it. I don't no. care who, who hates me or how much abuse I get. I'm not going to pretend that this doesn't matter and this doesn't hurt vulnerable women and girls. It's not right. It's going to run and run. I saw you engaging with Stephen King. What the hell is Stephen King getting involved in this for? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. I love I the man's books, but give me a break, you know? Terrible. Oh, you know what? It's woke, woke blokes. Yeah. Woke blokes and Western liberal feminists are the most dangerous, dangerous people um, that pose the most risk to women's rights yeah. in the West at the moment. They they don't even believe women exist. They just think it's a thought or something. And they want to erase the significance of sex so that uh, women, you know, they go on a lot about, oh, women are victims of stalkers and sexual assault. But then they want access for all males who, who want to be women to female spaces. Crazy. They're hypocrites. They're dangerous. They need called out. And I, I cannot accept this pylon on people like J.K. Rowling yeah. and women who say, actually, women's changing rooms yeah. should kind yeah. of just be for females, if that's okay. Yeah. But no, they're suddenly turfs, they're Nazis, they need to lose their jobs. I've never known such a misogynistic movement in my lifetime. Never seen anything like it. Uh, there's a, uh, <laughs> Diane is tweeting us. Diane was on the programme. Diane is a transsexual woman. Um, lovely, yeah. lovely um, lady was on the programme with me. Um, she's one of the generation you spoke about. She can't understand this, Diane. Yeah, uh, she doesn't support Wonderful. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I went to see her speak. These, these the trans women from that end of the spectrum are hugely supportive of women yeah. and are on my side. It's the gender extremists that have hijacked the whole movement and made it a whole load of woohoo, non-binary nonsense. Madness. And do, do you know, just before we go, I don't really believe that Stephen King believes any of this. I wonder, why do people feel, why do they come under pressure to, to say stuff, to, to virtue signal. I mean, if I was sitting down with Stephen King having a beer a couple of years ago, I don't believe for a minute yeah. that he thinks it's okay for this stuff to be going on. Anyway, Belinda, I've loved having you on the programme. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming on. You can follow Belinda on Twitter. It's at Belinda DeLucy. And be kind. You don't agree with Belinda, fair enough. But she's standing up for your right to stay, to think and to believe what you want to believe. That'll do for me all day long. If we were all like that, Belinda, you know I wouldn't dream of patronising you, but if we all had Not your attitude and my attitude, tell you what, it'd be a lot better place to live, wouldn't it? And I've got thick skin, I can take it. You can take it, Annie. <laughs> well, you've had to learn, haven't you, since, <laughs> yeah. since 2016, you've had to learn to have thick, uh, thick skin. Listen, have a brilliant weekend and thanks for Thank coming you. on. Lovely to meet you. So much. Take care. Thanks, Belinda. Bye now. That's a Belinda, a Belinda de Lucy. Belinda was a former Brexit Party MEP. Uh, she was in the European Parliament. She was on the Women's Commission there as well. Um, I've actually blocked a couple of people. I don't block people as a rule. I don't. Why do I not block people? Because there isn't anything you could say to me on Twitter. Nothing that could offend me or, or annoy me to the point where I would block you. But I've blocked a couple of people who've um, used some very rude words to describe Belinda. Because she has had the vaccine. Some, I think some of the people, maybe it's a small, maybe it's a tiny, tiny percentage, who listen to this programme are massive hypocrites. You want to be allowed to say and do, more importantly, what it is you want to say and do. But somebody else does something different. 
and you go in on them and go to town on them and call them names, sexual swear words, because she's had the vaccine and she trusts it. That's her prerogative. She's not trying to sell the vaccine. She doesn't want you to have it. She doesn't want you to be forced to have it. Right? I make my feelings clear on what I think the vaccines might do to people. And I make my feelings pretty clear that they're not really vaccines. And I talk about the Great Reset Agenda 2030. But I I love having people on who see things a bit differently. Don't be abusive to them. I've seen one or two people tweeting her using sexual swear words against her. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just tweet and say, oh, I see it differently, Belinda. I think the vaccines might be deadly. Why would you not do that instead of swearing at her? And one of the people I've blocked has been a fairly regular Twitter contributor to this programme. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? It's good for the goose, but not for the gander. You want the right to do and say what you want to do and say. But if somebody else sees it differently, you can use sexual swear words at them. You need to have a, you need to have a word with yourself, don't you? That's a very low vibrational place to be, isn't it? You're not in a good place there, right? I've said enough times what I think about the vaccines, Klaus Fab, the, global, the, the, the globalist uh, plan behind all of this, Soros and others. I've talked about it till we're blue in the face. It's nice to have somebody else on who sees it a bit differently, isn't it? Wow, sexual swear words against somebody. And I'm not virtue signalling here now. I'm just a bit surprised, that's all. It's like you haven't learned anything in the last uh, few years. You need to buck your ideas up, I think, a bit. Anyway, we're going to leave uh, coronavirus and lockdowns. And we're going to talk UFOs. Things that go bump in the night, not really, but but unidentified sign objects. With a, a lovely, lovely bloke, an author, top man, Bruce Fenton. Bruce will be with me in a few minutes' time. Very kind of Bruce to come on. Uh, late to notice, but he came on anyway. Four minutes past six, the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford. Super Salford. This is Jamiroquai. told you the story before, it's a boring one but I'll tell you again, the legendary Bob Houston, a fantastic radio DJ from Waterford, Bob died some years ago, I think he died around 2001, he was a lovely man Bob, and his thing was a country music programme, he used to present a country music programme, and he used to do breakfast, and he wasn't into pop music, and uh, he was famous for mispronouncing people's names, so Jamiroquai became Jamiraki, and, and he meant that. Our Christmas parties were hilarious with all the uh, with all the, with the gag reels. Right, I'm delighted to say we're not going to talk, at least not too much, about lockdowns and coronavirus, uh, because uh, we're going to take a, a kind of a we're going to take a left turn or a right turner. Maybe we're not going to turn at all. This is very interesting. I was doing my joggy thing, which I do most mornings, listening to the radio, switching around as I was running and. Quite a lot of stations were talking about comments made by former US President Barack Obama. He was on The Late Show, or The Late Late Show with James Corden, and he was asked if he had a theory about UFOs. And Obama said, I'm being serious here. There's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they moved or their trajectory. They didn't have an easily explainable pattern, he said. So I think that people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what that is. But I have nothing to report to you today, he said. Now, one of the people who's been trying to figure this out is a top man uh, called Bruce 
Fenton, Bruce or Fenton. You know Bruce, you know him very well. He was on the programme last year. He curates ancientnews.net. He's an expert in this field. He's been on uh, television, the Science Channel, the History Channel. He's been featured in the Telegraph and other newspapers. But he's also written a couple of excellent books. And he was on last year to talk about exogenesis, hybrid humans, a scientific history. He sent me that book in advance, which was brilliant. And it's a great read. And he's come on with me today at short notice. I'm delighted to welcome back uh, the great Bruce Fenton. How are you doing, Bruce? Uh, Richie, I'm absolutely great. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully you can say the same. I'm I'm all right. You know, I'm better now. I said to you this morning, thank God you said yes. <laughs> I couldn't face two hours again of talking about lockdowns. When I said you were coming on, because you're well known, of course, everybody knows you, people who are interested in this subject, they know all about you. Um, I remember years ago, uh, God be good to Jim Mars, by the way, who was um, a very close friend of mine. Um, not not long before Jim passed away, you, yours was a name that came up in conversation. Jim had asked me, had I, you know, had I met you, had I got you on, and we eventually did meet. But um, yeah, so it seems. Forget Obama's comments just for a minute. Well, let's not forget them. He said what he said last night. But in recent weeks and months, more and more, we're hearing more and more from people about, um, you know, UFOs, about stuff that isn't explained. And we're told that we're on the verge of some pretty big announcements, not only out of the United States, but out of the Ministry of Defence as well. You're no better man, Bruce. What's going on? Yeah, it's um, it's amazing, isn't it? We've um, seen a complete hard right in terms of the way the UFO reporting has been happening, you know, obviously over the last decade or more. Um, with this, of course, the initial 2017 sort of, uh, I say the Tom DeLong spearheaded media campaign that we saw in 2017 with the New York Times and, you know, other media platforms kind of picking up this story of these encounters the US Navy had with what apparently multiple, you know, multiple objects, you know, craft, they're saying they are, um, that in, you know, there was apparently we see one, you know, we see one object in a video, obviously, we see that in the the forward looking infrared. But there was supposedly, you know, whole fleets of these objects flying around, you know, which are picked up on the radar, because we don't get any access to radar, and we don't know. So a lot of this is anecdotes, right? So we're kind of taking it on faith that there were more craft. So there's a whole story there of, you know, Navy craft being buzzed by objects and and then that's repeating because in the last few weeks we've we've heard you know from a few platforms that there also were recent cases where um you know again there were kind of swarms of what they're calling either drones or anomalous aerial vehicles that were just buzzing these ships you know and at night they'd come down kind of glowing flying around the ships so obviously something really really strange is happening but the big question mark over it of course is uh, what is that and who is heading it? You know, is it terrestrial? Is it extraterrestrial or some confusing mix of both? You know, what's happening? Yeah, yeah. this is amazing, isn't it? Interdimensional, of course. We, 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 I think mm-hmm. we, we talked about mm-hmm. that last time as well. Yep. So a lot of it is anecdotal, but but it's coming from men and women that are very experienced in terms yeah. of um, knowing what, when they're looking at something that's airborne, knowing what it is. Uh, and and having an understand an understanding even of what human made crafts can do, Bruce, what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. I remember boring you last time you were on, telling you about that Aer Lingus captain who told me that he saw things over thirty years of flying from Dublin to JFK Airport in New York. He saw things that, as far as he understood anyway, 
that we didn't have the capability of 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 manoeuvring like that. You know, doing strange, crazy mm-hmm. uh, airborne manoeuvres and stuff like that. So we can, when, when yeah. they say that these yeah. things are, you know, UFOs, we can trust these people, can't we? They're not mistaken. Well, I these, so. yeah. I mean, they come across as very honest. You know, when you look at the the interviews with the various pilots, and you, and you also have to say. What do they stand to gain? There's no particularly obvious gains for them. You know, they're not going to make a lot of money out of this. If, you know, once upon a time, I suppose, when when the UFO um, kind of field began, you know, okay, yes, you could say some people made a name for themselves, got a bit of money, but that, that really isn't happening anymore. You know, it's extraordinarily rare for anyone to to make money out of the UFO topic. So it's not really worth them putting their, their names to any of this. You know, it's very hard to see that they're going to come out of it with anything but you know, a lot of media harassment, you know, having to come yeah. on these shows and interviews. And of course, people wanting to ask them about you know, what happened, you know, they're going to get pursued. So, I mean, you've got to say there's a lot of downside for them coming out and saying, you know, we saw something strange. And then, of course, possible ridicule, uh, impacts on their current careers. So, you know, we need to that sort of balance of evidence. You think, well, it seems unlikely that they would have just made this up. And again, it was in the official reports, you know, they report this as an incident at the time, you know, they haven't kind of just come out with it later so it's it's all been filed the proper way so i i would take it as yeah that these are real events so then the the real question that we're left with is so to what degree is this completely anomalous um is any of it you know of course secret tech is always weird out. but that has lots of arguments against it as well you know this idea of why test your top secret tech against your own people in yeah, a you know yeah. in a controlled space why not just fly over era 51 you know they're kind of typical way that they would test new planes and stuff so there's a lot there's a lot of question marks around this claim that it could be you know deep black tech now you can't say absolutely not but because that we have other objects over the last few decades again we can't just simply clear them all up by saying there's a secret space program or something like that because you know even going back to was it i think the, the 60s or earlier there were incidents over uh, Rendlesham, which of course is most famous for the 1980s Rendlesham case, where we yeah, had forest, an object yeah. landed. Um, we had, you know, many U.S. service people encountering flying orbs, flying through the forests, you know, landed craft. But what's not as known is that, you know, 20, 30 years before that, in the same area, there were objects picked up going 12,000 miles an hour over Rendlesham. 12,000 miles an hour, Bruce. Yeah. And so who was flying those you yeah. know, decades ago, 12,000 miles an hour, picked up and read, same location, you know, decades before. So there's clearly something going on that is um, deeper rooted in our history uh, and is not explainable by modern world, you know, cutting edge tech, which yeah. can now explain some of what's getting seen. But this is, uh, you know, this is a phenomena with some deep roots. It certainly has. And I'm going to recommend again, folks, that you check out Bruce if you haven't. If it's the first time you're hearing Bruce, if you're new to the subject, uh, do follow him on Twitter. Uh, first of all, uh, Bruce's Twitter handle. I'll give it to you now. It's at Exogenesis HH. Exogenesis HH. I'll tweet Bruce during the programme as we're chatting. I'll tweet him and later on. So give him a follow. And the website. And do check out his books. Um, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans is a really, really readable book. It's interesting about the, the human genome and extraterrestrial presence here on Earth. The evidence to support that. He's a great writer is Bruce. Lovely to have him back on the programme. Now, here's the question for me, right? As a real mm-hmm. novice, if, um, if our governments believe and know that there is a non-human presence that is visiting the planet or Bruce, as you might suspect, might be here. I would have imagined for years 
that they would have been very reluctant to acknowledge that for the obvious mm-hmm. reason, because they would lose control or that they would fear they would lose control and that maybe, um, maybe, maybe engaging with, with UFOs or engaging with non-human entities would be a kind of a new religion, that it would basically disturb people. And it would disturb the peace. So I would have said, I asked a politician years ago, I can't remember the exact answer he gave me. On, when I was on the radio in Spain, I said, if you knew it all to be going on, you know, if you knew this is all true, surely you would try and keep that from the people. I think he kind of said that he would, they would keep it because they would worry about some kind of, kind of perceived loss of control. What do you think of that as an idea? Yeah, I mean, I think we um, there's a, a guy Alexander Went who's written a few pretty good articles on this topic that if, if you look at how our sort of structure works, the hierarchical structures that we have, you know, there is, is an implicit threat there if, if we have a higher power, you know, essentially an extraterrestrial, and a very advanced um, alien group. Now that could be alien as an extraterrestrial, interdimensional, you know, whatever. Yeah. But if we have something there that is above the government, you know, above all of our military, that that is a, a ideological and philosophical threat to their power structure. So you can see how they wouldn't see there was much to gain in kind of wheeling out the information around that, that, you know, we're not the top of the pyramid after all. Turns out there's someone who's maybe, you know, a million years ahead, you know, or whatever it is. So that would definitely put a seed in people's minds that, hang on a minute, you know, who's really at the, you know, the top here? Who's really running this planet? Yeah. You know, there'd be some real questions that I don't think they want the average person asking. So, so that does beg that question then. So why are they moving towards what seems to be, you know, at least a limited disclosure of the reality of anomalous aerial vehicles and anomalous aerial phenomena. Bruce, if you had to bet your last fiver on the answer to that question, what would you say? Well, I think we have a couple of different things in the mix. Now, a few weeks ago, I, I pointed out on Twitter to people that one of the major issues that I see in this is that we are now moving quite deep into a, a drone war, essentially a cold war, but it's, you know, a, a drone war is building up between different powers, obviously, mainly the US, China, uh, Russia, and to some degree Europe, that that is far more progressed than I think that most people realize. Now, if you consider for a moment that all of these nations expect that there's the possibility that they may at some point enter into a hot war, which is going to be mainly drones battling drones, you know, and autonomous robots yeah. and all of this, which is what essentially is around the corner, then you have a big problem. If you've seeded amongst your military this, do- this kind of dogmatic stigma that if you see anything strange, like a flying saucer or glowing objects, you know, you don't report that yeah. because, you know, <laughs> you won't get a promotion. Now you can see that there is a problem because... If China, say, created a glowing saucer-like drone and flew it over a U.S. military base, now, can you see a problem there if nobody wants to report it, right? Absolutely. So the U.S. military, I say, have have realized that they have a massive handicap because China and Russia never really pushed that stigma against UFOs, right? But the U.S. massively did. We know there's been several projects in the past that were set up essentially to debunk the subject and get the public to stop reporting them because they said it was jamming up you know military time uh, with dealing with these ufos that were essentially were no threat no particular interest you know they were aware that there was a lot of unexplained things flying around but they were no threat they weren't attacking and the military the air force wanted out of the topic so they built up this whole narrative that essentially it was swamp gas venus you know and, and satellites this now no longer 
can work for them because they've put themselves on the back foot against, you know, this impending potential drone war where anything can fly over the US and people will just say, well, I, you know, I don't want to call up and sound like an idiot. So now they're saying, see something, say something. So you can see that on the one side you have that. But I don't think it's just the whole story. I think that is a major part in why suddenly the DOD and the Pentagon are saying we need these pilots and we need these people on the ground to report anything strange up there. So, I mean, that's the the mundane, logical part of this. There's nothing mundane about that, by the way. I wouldn't have thought no. of that in a million years. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. We're moving into a, a future where wars and surveillance is going to be done against mm-hmm. countries using these drones. If you're telling people to shut up and stop bringing us, that's very yeah. good, Bruce. But there is another part you're coming on to now. Absolutely, because then we have to remember as well that that there is also those existing anomalies that are flying around. So although they want you to report, you know, these drones, you know, obviously they're saying, you know, they've reported some of these cases, they're, they're calling what they've seen drones. And it may well be that in at least some of the videos we're seeing, you know, that we've seen these supposed triangles and other things. It may well be that some of them are drones, right? Because we don't know. Yeah. We don't have clear footage. What we have is, you know, grainy footage at best. Um, you know, infrared, which obviously gives you the heat shape, doesn't give you the structure of the craft, right? So so we don't have a really accurate eye on what these are. So some of the things may be drones. Obviously, the things that are behaving in ways that seem to uh, really challenge the laws of physics as we understand yeah, it, yeah. that is problematic, of course, because it's very difficult to say someone has leapfrogged so far into the future that they now have crafts that can go to a dead stop, right, without falling to pieces yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or hard rights at 12,000 miles an hour. You know, that that kind of stuff obviously is beyond next generation. Some of the other things um, were not actually doing anything extraordinary. In these videos, we see objects that you know appear to come down into the ocean. But if you if you look a bit closer, it looks actually that this is the spherical one that people may have seen. It actually seems to go over the horizon. Right. So it's not doing anything extraordinary. And then we have these triangles, which, again, you know, they're not flying at great speeds. And I think some of these will probably be this is something we should be careful of. Remember that um, back in the day, one of the policies of the, the DOD and stuff was that you would take some really good UFO cases, put them out in the public, make sure everyone's focused on them and then debunk them. And, right. and that was how they, they managed to get most of the people to go away from the UFO topic by saying, look, you know, what you think is extraordinary things, we've solved them. There's nothing there to look at. Can I ask so a question on that? Can I ask, can, I ask a, again. can I ask a quick question on that? I used to, yeah. on my on, during my Spain days, I used to regularly bring Nick Pope on the programme in Spain. And I always liked Nick, and I wouldn't say a bad mm-hmm. word against him. Um, always jolly. He was always there. Nick worked at the MOD, of course. Mm-hmm. But some... some uh, researchers, not, not not you obviously, uh, Bruce, but re- researchers like you um, who had written books, they would privately say to me, Richie, I have nothing against Nick now personally, don't take this the wrong way, they would say, but I believe that Nick, either knowingly or unwittingly, he's part of that whole try and cover it up and try and explain it all away. That's kind of his job. Um, not to be, uh, you know, b- mm-hmm. bashing Nick now because he's not here to defend himself, but do you think that might have been the case when he was at the MOD? Well, I think their basic uh, aim was really to kind of minimize involvement with UFOs. So you can see why they would want to 
do everything they could to kind of dismiss that for the same reasons as the US used, you know, they didn't want to put time on it. And they, they would often with the freedom of information, you know, request, it would just sound, you know, we don't really investigate because there's no threat, you know, we go as far as looking to see if there's a threat. So they really were kind of set up to almost dismiss yeah. UFOs. So I, I do think that was part of the structure of the jobs that, you know, that team were doing. And it was a very small team, from what I understand, you know, um, and that they basically would only look at, you know, a handful of cases. They wouldn't put a lot of resources into it. So it doesn't sound like it was taken as seriously as perhaps some might think, you know, and even in, I think Nick has said, you know, it was only part of his role at the MOD. I mean, it's, it's, it wasn't like a huge division of UFO That's research. Right. Right, yeah. like yeah. that. Um, but there is some, you know, we, we also told, of course, that there was at least one case, which was quite extraordinary. And you know, I think Nick has highlighted that, you know, there was a photo that showed a, I think it was a, a diamond shaped craft you know, hovering, you know, in the air with uh, a jet plane went past and, you know, some managed to get a some couple of hikers got a photo. And that was recently, um, again, classified to be secret for the next 70 years, right? And that this is supposed to be, and everything's supposed to be disclosed, remember? We've, we've stopped UFO investigations. All the files are supposed to be public now. And that one was resealed for another sort of 70 years. So it does suggest there's some there's more to there, it. Right? So when there's something really extraordinary, they don't want us to see it. I'm going to read a few comments. Uh, Bruce Fenton is our guest. I'm delighted there's been a huge response on Twitter. I knew there would be. It's about time we got away from coronavirus because this is just a serious, this is very serious, grave implications for who we are and how we ended up uh, here as well. Um, Bear on Twitter, Sooty on Twitter says, maybe the aliens think it's time for some adult intervention down here. That's a, a question. Caroline says, uh, as far as governments, she agrees. She says, yeah, they wouldn't like to have something they couldn't control. It would make sense. They would try, you know, and, and cover it up, which again, would say, well, it's bizarre now that they're coming out and saying, yes, yes, we're we're finding things. John Pierce, terrific comment from John. John says, Richie, there used to be a steady stream of grainy film footage of UFOs, but in the age of the camera phone, they seem to have stopped and they haven't been replaced by high-res UFO footage. I wonder why that is. That's a brilliant point, John. That's brilliant. We we all remember the famous photographs in the magazines taken in the 60s, the 70s, grainy pictures, very interesting, very compelling. John is saying, we've got these amazing cameras now. Where are all these photographs that, that, that should be much more clearer? Over to you, Bruce. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I say is there's an awful lot of, of UFO footage that does get uploaded to YouTube channels and that I don't watch, to be honest. So, I mean, I can't say that it's all bad. You know, I've yeah. seen a few that look interesting but there's a lot of it i don't watch because there's a point where i've got to where it's no longer for me what's in those images you know it's the behavior it's the people that have interacted with them yeah. um it's the descriptions of the close encounters you know that's what really interests me because to some degree no matter how good the footage is you know you can always say well so what is it because we don't have a an, an alien spaceship on file that we can compare things against right so people can always say well it was maybe Maybe it was an exotic drone. Maybe it was a, a test plane. Maybe it was, you know, and the list goes on. And that's the problem with, with video. And also, of course, if it's too good, we think, well, it's probably just advanced, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, manipulation on someone's computer. So we've got to that point where I don't know if a video of any type could really lead to an absolute conclusion. I think it's, it's really problematic. I've had um, experts who've said that we've, we've pretty much hit the boundary now where it's almost impossible for anyone to kind of, 
you know, be certain that something's not fake. Isn't that incredible? You know, it's, it's kind of this, the software's got that good now that it's, it's almost impossible. So what do we do with that? That makes it difficult. I think we have to look at other types of evidence. You know, I'm not saying dismissing the videos, but I do think we need the other types of evidence. That's why reports from pilots, of course, are important. Um, anyone who's had kind of close encounters where there's been multiple witnesses, you know, those kind of accounts as well are particularly interesting. Um, but that's the, well, I think the broader phenomena around this. And like, I just want to, I would just differentiate a little bit because UFOs, you know, is a term which is in itself problematic, right? And I think we all sort of know why, because for the debunkers and the skeptics and people on the fence, well, they use, well, unidentified flying objects. So, you know, it could be satellite, birds, you know, clouds, you know. Yeah. What, what, what I tend to refer to, and you'll notice some of the intelligence community use these terms, is anomalous aerial vehicles and anomalous aerial phenomena. Because if something is behaving in an anomalous way, something that's like basically unexplainable, that's not the same as just it being unidentified. Right. Because if you see something that can teleport or it's um, doing hard stops you know, at, at great speeds, that's an anomaly, right? So I'm not interested in UFOs. I'm interested in anomalous phenomena that are really challenging our understanding of, you know, the sciences or of human cognition, you know, something about it that's extraordinary. And that's what we're seeing with some of these, you know, at least we're hearing and seeing to some degree with some of these cases with the Navy is that, you know, they are behaving in ways that are anomalous, you know, and the science is it's problematic. You know, how are they doing this? Again, if they're doing these hard stops, then... It seems to be technology that has to belong to either extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, or some kind of crypto-terrestrials, you know, some kind of civilization that is hidden here. You know, we have all these legends of underground civilizations. Yeah, yeah. You know, those are basically the free options once you get to it, that some of these do not seem to be applicable to hidden technology of, you know, America uh, or simply you know hoaxing it or whatever that they seem to go beyond and we know that the history of that goes back decades and decades so we have a presence here of somebody that has these technologies my suspicion is that we we likely have a mix and i don't i don't think we should limit this because you know if we have a universe that is populated with advanced types of intelligence they can be of multiple kinds. We may well have interdimensionalism. If you look at some of the phenomena that's been described, you know, objects that pop in and out of reality, uh, those sound kind of interdimensional to me. If you look at a lot of the cases where the ships just seem to appear or they come out of an orb of light and begin to yeah, manifest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and others that seem to come in from space, you know, apparently, again, picked up on satellites. You know, we've heard uh, Rubio, you know, talking about this idea that satellites, military satellites, are, are capturing um, some of these objects coming in. So... I do wonder, and then you've got objects coming out of the oceans, apparently, and operating in the oceans. So we could well have a mixture of, you know, of all three. Sounds, this this is brilliant stuff. I've just been reminded about Jacques Villiers, or Villiers, who tends, mm -hmm. tends to think that these things might be interdimensional. I've had a number of tweets mm -hmm. and messages from people who talk about, you know, the idea that the that our universe is holographic and that would make sense when when, when yeah. if you if you start to think about interdimensional uh, things. We've got Bruce Fenton on the programme. It's the most interesting hour now I've spent for a long time, I don't mind telling you. Not that I don't love my guests who come on to talk about coronavirus, but this is brilliant. Go to ancientnews.net. Eric Von Daniken, who was on this programme twice over the years and who we loved having on, has endorsed uh, Bruce, loves what Bruce does. Uh, check out Bruce's books, particularly uh, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans, which he sent to me last year, which is a great read. Uh, do support him and follow him on, on, uh, on Twitter. Um, you mentioned the sphere 
that just gives me goosebumps because that Aer Lingus pilot who told me back in 2007 in Spain when I was propping up my, my, my better half's pub, she had a bar there, he said, he, he talked to me about the sphere. So when in recent years when people have talked about the sphere, that's just given me goosebumps because I spoke, and I have no reason to make this up, I spoke to a retired Aer Lingus captain and he told me, by the way, that if they had ever reported that, they would have been mm-hmm. taken out of the flight deck. And you know this, don't you, right. Bruce? Mm-hmm. They would have just mm-hmm. been, they would have been basically sat down and told, right, you're off uh, flight duty for a while. And he, he talked to me about the sphere. I've no doubt these things are real. I believe they're real. What they're doing here. You know what I think, Bruce? And this is just, mm-hmm. it's laughable me saying anything because I've done no research here. I, I listen to people like you. I, I wonder if some future version of ourselves might also because it doesn't mean it's exclusive, of course. Everything you said, intelligent life forms from this universe or other universes, that makes sense. Multiverses make sense. Um, being here already, which you've explored in your books, makes perfect sense to me. But also that some future version of ourselves, because the the, the lovely um, um, Rich Tyrrell from NASA. I know everybody says that the NASA guys are all liars and all that. But I interviewed Rich and I really loved having him on. He he believes the universe, our universe is holographic. It's a simulation. And his best guess, and he, he said it's only a guess, he's got no proof whatsoever, no, nothing. He said that if it is some sort of holographic kind of a thing, some future version of ourselves might have been involved. Do you think about that sometimes, Bruce? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think when we deal with the questions of the greater reality, that, yeah, I, I certainly have come to a conclusion that, that this reality operates like some kind of VR holodeck type experience, that we are a consciousness operating a you know, what appears to be a physical avatar. But even then, the atoms essentially are just empty space, mostly. So, I mean, it, it really isn't very solid anyway. No. Um, that's my feeling, yeah. And I, I think there's some really great work out there, you know, on that. There's, um, you know, a number of sort of cutting-edge researchers in physics that are coming to the same kind of conclusions that it may not be uh, a VR in the sense that we think of in computer games. It may be something even more complex. But it, it definitely appears that, our reality operates in a similar way to the way we would imagine, you know, in a hyper advanced VR system would work. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's kind of suspicion itself. And then you have all the things like the, the synchronicities, you know, the mystical events, a lot of that stuff, it, it seems almost programmed in, you know, if you're going to make a game, you want it to make it interesting, right? So you put in there a few kind of superpowers, like, you know, the psychic abilities that people can access, you put in there the synchronicities to guide them through the adventure. There's a lot of that in there. And I, and I, a lot of those synchronicities to me, I mean, they kind of led me in the direction of thinking it is some kind of VR thing. <laughs> and I moved into yeah. a house a little while back and um, there was just an empty DVD case in the loft of the Matrix, you know, of all things. Was you know, there? you just have these strange <laughs> things that happen. You know, you're like, Brilliant. all the things I'd find up there, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> you just have these flow of weirdness. But yeah, I, so I tend to agree that these physicists, I think they're going in the right direction. I don't know exactly how it works, but yeah, I think that would explain a lot of the well, all of the very strange stuff we see, because it could well just be, you know, deliberately added in by whatever or whoever, you know, seeded this simulation. Absolutely. And uh, my, my old mate who has been hammered for, for, for three decades, just for, just for offering his opinions on things like this, my old pal, David Icke, um, you know, was always honest. You know, David always said, look, the simulation theory is not my theory. But he ran, mm-hmm. with, but he ran with it. He, he, he took it on and, and interviewed people yeah. about it and, and, and wrote about it. But he said, yeah, that's where I think the interdimensional 
um, beings. Um, that, that, that's, you know, kind of how they access it, interdimensionally, how they access this. And maybe they're in control of it. Maybe they're not. Maybe there's some mm-hmm. interdimensional multiverse kind of war going. I don't want to get too much into the war thing. I used to, I used to bore poor Jim Mars about that. Because <laughs> Jim, Jim, Jim was kind of, you know, he was interested in that. Is there some yeah. battle going on, you know? And yeah. are we kind of involved, you know, are we somehow involved? Are we, are we bearing witness to it or whatever? But I love what you said about, you know, things like psychic abilities, almost like a game element to it. I, I, and people have been able to access some of that stuff. And you, that, that makes me think of the recent Spielberg movie, Ready Player One, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah. I, I think uh, I watched a, a talk somebody gave on YouTube where they, 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 they tried to use that film as an analogy of maybe of the existence that, that we're experiencing. Again, I don't know whether, you know, what to think of that other than just, just kind of to keep an open mind about it. But we shouldn't lose sight of where we are. We've got Bruce Fenton on the programme and what's really important to talk about is where we came in and that is that for some reason now our governments are talking about this openly and are saying things that I never thought they'd say, that, yes, there are these uh, things that we can't explain and, you know, these things might be real. And what's in it for them? We've had so many comments on this, uh, by the way, too many to get through. But what's in it for them? We've been discussing that with Bruce. And Bruce, remember, this is your hour. Uh, We've got probably about 20 minutes left. So if there's stuff you really want to talk about, just jump straight in there now with two feet, right? Because I'll just waffle on, basically, if you don't. Well, sure, but there's, there's two points I want to pick up on there. One thing about the psychic powers, another thing about yeah, where um, what they might gain out of this. Um, on the psychic powers side, I just wanted to quickly add as well that in at least, well, I think a couple of these different incidents that we've seen with the Navy, you know, that some of those involved, you know, have reported what seems to be instances of psychic phenomena. For example, um, we are told that the object, this tic-tac object, you know, tic-tac-shaped object, that it anticipated the cap point, which is where, you know, the, the planes were, meant to go on to next and it appeared there right so in some way it knew where they were going to go next and had anticipated it as though it knew in from their minds you know where right. they were going to go next and now i've also um i've, you know, I've heard from a couple of people that have been involved in some of these incidents and they've gone on to have all sorts of strange psychic you know things happening in their lives there's a couple of different people that are from that from the inc- these incidents who now are online in twitter and some people can you know track them down but who have reported that you know their lives went on to be really extraordinary and full of high strangeness so there does seem to be a psychical interaction between these these objects and some of the, the witnesses and i think that's something that gets missed out of the conversation because of course mainstream media just is not ready to go there that's not you know they may go there let's see how weird it gets but they're not going to jump straight to there's something up there that beams things into our heads and reads our minds and can anticipate what we're doing and is a basically kind of operating almost like um, if anyone knows Dark City um, or the um, the Adjustment Bureau, th- this kind of idea that they know what we're doing and maybe can manipulate us on such a scale that it would be unimaginable, you know, like that we are just being played with by an intelligence that's almost godlike. Bruce, right? do you do you mean manipulated into doing things that we wouldn't otherwise do, like bad things, very bad things? Well, it, not necessarily bad, but the fact if they seem to know what we're thinking and that they can put things into our heads, I mean, yeah. that, that takes away a lot of that idea of autonomy and that, you know, terrestrial control that we think we have. And it's funny, a, a guy I know who was an ex-science journalist from the Daily Mail, he said he, he had an encounter where there was an object over Dover, and this is many years ago, and he was there with his photographer. And he said that, you know, everyone stopped, they're looking up, there was this UFO up there, you know, this strange thing, flashing lights, and all this, And he said everyone was watching it. And he said he had this funny voice, he said suddenly he had this almost like his own voice in his head telling him, 
it's just an it's just in a military plane and he was like because he'd been in the military and he thought no it's not and he's like it's just an raf plane you know and then it was something and he said it was almost like a, and he was like no it's not. And then he was almost like a ah whatever you know yeah so it was almost like he realized that it was somehow giving off a psychical field to make the people that saw it think it was just something reasonable and he said and it was almost like at the end it almost sort of ah, all right whatever you know yeah and which was really weird so you think what 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 is going on there you know are these objects generally manipulating our minds so many people say don't they you know that after it's happened they had even missing time or that's right you, know, you find people that saw an object but half of them say years later they didn't remember it or didn't even see it at the time you know some people saw them and other people didn't now that takes you into a whole realm of magical technologies right where we get to the arthur c clark idea and that any sufficiently advanced technology would appear like magic so i think we may be dealing with something that's so advanced that it's really goes beyond yeah beyond the conception that we have and into almost the spiritual you know where where you can see how our ancestors may have considered these things to be you know gods demons angels you know that were operating around us because for all intents and purposes they have powers that we just can barely fathom barely fathom is right moz has been on lots of people uh, brown eye says that these new recent um, developments you know these new sightings uh, are fake apparently alex and the gang at infowars were talking about this weeks before they they, they became reported in mainstream that, that's interesting if that's true and mm-hmm. um, moz says richie i'm interested in bruce's thoughts on the moon being artificial referencing the books, you know, who built the moon or there's someone Mm -hmm. on the moon. I know I've had people on the programme over the years who presented evidence that the moon is hollow because we've um, we've launched objects at the moon, haven't we, Bruce? As far as I understand, and it it, it gave off uh, mm-hmm. the readings coming back would suggest that the moon was actually hollow. And what would that mean? Let me just read one or two more. You can pick up on any of these. Sure. If I don't read them, they'll hammer me for not doing it. Um, mm-hmm. David says, if we subscribe to the theory, these visitors are directly responsible for splicing the DNA of the proto-hominids they found on Earth to create mm-hmm. us modern humans, uh, then this lab-made virus is an abomination, back to COVID, is an abomination to their creation. Hopefully the Chinese will be toast, says David. I don't want to make it out. There's probably a lot to get into there, so I'll leave that one. I'll move right on. Um, Elizabeth is in Madrid. Any uh, thoughts Bruce might have on Antarctica? I think we, we might have briefly touched on that last year. It's limited for people to go to, except the elites seem to meet there frequently. Good question. Now, do, you want to, do you want to do the moon and then Antarctica for a minute? I know we're jumping all over the place now. Sure, I'll just quickly try and whip through those. Yeah, so the moon, we have, yeah, the anomaly that it seems to be hollow, that we've had impacts where it rings for quite a while. Um, there's, obviously, in the past, there's been a few, you know, NASA guys, I think, that came out showing that there was photos of the you know, the dark side of the moon where it looked like there were anomalies, you know, that seemed to be tracks, you know, even um, some towers, you know, very strange things in some of the images. Um, the remote viewing programs, some of the guys involved in that, the other project Stargate, and some of those people, they remote viewed the moon and said that they, they saw mining activities on the dark side of the moon. Wow. Um, very recently, there was a paper that's come out that uh, was suggesting you know, that we should be looking for using AI to skim through pictures to look for anomalies. And that they had done some of this and that had come up with a, an image that appeared to be a tunnel entrance that, you know, with raised walls going down and a tunnel going down into the moon, you know, the lunar surface. And that, you know, we're calling for someone to investigate this because it seemed to be a genuine anomaly. And this is, you know, academic scientists, you know. Um, so it does seem that there is potential for something very strange going on on our nearest body. And obviously it's 
almost explicable how it's there. You know, I remember there makes was a, no sense, does one it? scientist who said, "Yeah, it's so big. It's so it's so unexpected." And one, I think there was a famous line from one actor who sort of said, that "The easiest way to explain it would be to say it's an optical illusion because <laughs> it, it just shouldn't be there. It's too big." And yeah, they've come up with the whack theory, the double whack theory, you know, all these different models, and nothing really seems to fully explain why we have this sort of planet-sized object floating around us. Now, could it have been put there? I mean, once you get to kind of type two, type three civilizations out there, then them rearranging parts of a solar system are possible. I mean, I'm not saying that happened because we can't prove it, but you, you have to then open your mind to the idea that there's civilizations that can move suns, potentially. You know, yeah. the, once you get to a certain level of of unbelievable technology we call these type three civilization that you can essentially you know move a planet right so that to a lot of people will seem just so far out but we have to keep in mind if there's a civilization out there that's been around for say a billion years longer than us then the things it could do would be absolutely inconceivable compared yeah. to you know our levels of technology um on the other so that the moon and then we were sorry what was the, and, the and, antarctica was? elizabeth mentioned yeah the elite seem yeah. to meet there she says uh it's a very limited place for others i mean it's limited anyway because getting there is a nightmare so yeah but yeah but but yeah. there seems to be some prohibition against people taking expeditions to certain parts of it i think she's right to mm -hmm. say that what, what do we know about that well we do know that you know it did used to be you know ice free you know they've shown that several times now we've got um frozen tree stumps recently there was frozen forests there's other evidence that you know was once i think possibly tropical but certainly it was ice free so if there was some kind of you know advanced previous civilization and again it doesn't need to be human and people get stuck on the idea that humans maybe been around for you know 100 million years and but it doesn't have to be humans you know let's just say that another life form on this planet evolved and became highly advanced you know, 100 million years ago. So we wouldn't necessarily find very much of that. But if there was some elements of their civilization frozen under that ice, well, then that would certainly be a reason to keep it secret. It then on top of, top of that, objects that hit the Earth and end up uh, frozen in that permafrost, you know, again, it'd be a, a kind of a natural repository to any, you know, space debris or anything interesting. So the potential for having discovered something that came down, you know, is also there. Um, anyone familiar with my work, by the way, in my book, I talk about this debris from an object 780,000 years right. ago. And interestingly enough, that debris field, it ends at Antarctica. And so I, I have been left to wonder, did parts of the craft go down into the ice? Because we, we know that's sort of shown to be where the, where the, um, the hottest, furthest moving parts of this debris that I talk about, this like tectonic, they end up in Antarctica. So I'm sort of being suspicious myself that possibly they have found part of the craft that i wrote about they may well have found part of it in the ice so that would be another reason why they would certainly not want us there but as you say it's a very hard place to reach so none of this we can really check ourselves no it's difficult i should mention as well i, I want to mention the book again exogenesis hybrid humans uh, bruce and daniela fenton of course i should mention daniela uh, bruce is on the program it's exactly 13 minutes uh, 13 and a half minutes to seven o'clock uh, this is flying by thanks for all your comments i interviewed them um, whitley streber years and years and years ago more years ago than I care to remember and I was grave, greatly sceptical at the time about the sort of visitation that would have led to an abduction and I'd seen the Christopher Walken film before meeting Whitley mm. and he very graciously mm. agreed to come on the programme with me even though he knew I, was, I wasn't going to be hostile but he knew I was going to challenge him fairly robustly and he was a gentleman, he came on anyway. I came out of the programme, I'm a sceptic, I have a very good understanding of when somebody is lying to me. 
right? There's a difference between someone telling you lies mm -hmm. and, and somebody yeah. who believes something that you yeah. might not believe. What I came yeah. out from the interview, I was convinced that the experiences Whitley wrote about in communion, I'm convinced that Whitley, at, at the very least, believes that he had those experiences. I, I, I mm -hmm. found him totally credible. And uh, you could probably explain better uh, about what happened to him now than, uh, than I could. I'm saying it because people are talking about it on Twitter, about abductions. And, you know, it must yeah. be a horrendously scary, terrifying, awful experience for anybody. But, but I believed him. I, I, I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, the abduction phenomena, you know, that's when I think that really I'm hopeful that the media will start to go there. But again, we know that unfortunately that the media is rather directed by money interests. So we'll have to see, you know, where the government and the the tech corporations would like yeah. the media to go. So we may not get to abductions, but they're actually really, um, I think they're a key aspect of this phenomena because we have people that we know something has happened to them. Okay, how do we know that? Because they've been evaluated by psychologists, psychiatrists right. over the years. And what has been found is that they consistently are, well, most of them are consistently are uh, honest people with no signs of mental illness who are suffering genuinely from PTSD, right? From, uh, from so you know, you're not gonna have PTSD if you'd made up a story and you know, you just turned up to be evaluated. Right. So these people have got genuine impacts of having gone through something traumatic, very traumatic. So what's going on there? I mean, there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. I think some of these cases you have um, physical evidence, you know, you've, you have implants now, okay, these implants, allegedly some of them have uh, anomalies you know they've taken objects out they've tested the materials and the metals have isotopic ratios that suggest that they are not from this planet they're not the same as the isotopes in our natural environment um we also have people that of course wake up you know scars marks cut you know scoop marks we have all of that and on top of that sometimes people seem to reappear you know outside and without their clothes on and really strange stuff so there's a there seems to be a physical element but then on the other side of it we have somewhere the people don't seem to be physically taken, but they are having this experience, you know, in their bed or wherever they are. Yeah. Uh, but it's fully immersive and real to them. You know, that as, if I could hack into your brain and I could feed, you know, a virtual reality world into your brain where you basically, you know, like the Matrix, I mean, where you didn't really know that you were not, you know, that you were still in your bed, that to you suddenly you sort of wake up and you find that you're in a room with beings, you know, trying to cut you. And so, I mean, you're going to have a massive trauma from that, you know, whether it was physically real or I've just, you know, hacked into your brain to you, there's no real difference, right? Because you're going to have had that experience and it's going to be that's right. traumatic, right? And there's some evidence that that's what's happening in some of these cases. Cause there was a guy down in Hawaii. He was a doctor that he had a number of um, patients who came to him saying that they had all, had abductions and believed that they'd had something put in their brains. Um, and so he did, he used the advanced scanning techniques, right, to kind of, you know, this machine, he had the most advanced equipment on Hawaii. And so he used this. And what he found was that in all of these people, there was an anomaly in the region of the brain that deals with um, visual and auditory information processing, i.e., you know, the major input into your, into your reality, you know, of your, what you're seeing and what you're hearing that, it looked like there's something anomaly in that area. Now, was the anomaly there naturally, or was that the scar of something having hacked into their reality? And I suspect that that's what we have. In some of these cases, this intelligence, this advanced intelligence, is running simulations directly in people's brains of how they would respond in abduction cases. Now, that I don't think is a technology that 
we could have. I mean, I may be wrong, but I'd be very surprised if there's any kind of, you know, black budget technology like that. Perhaps I'm wrong, but the, at least in some of these cases, it appears I think that it's happening in their head. And in other cases, it may well be physical. And again, this is why these subjects are so complex. There's no singular answer. I think as, you know, Valet and, you know, others have kind of said, yeah, there's also this side of a, a kind of a control grid that some of this phenomena may also be fully psychical or interdimensional, but there's there's an aspect to it of not necessarily physical. And we have to be careful not to get stuck on the idea this is all ships flying down from space, you know, laddie in your garden, um, going in your bedroom and, you know, hacking at you. Because I think an awful lot of it just doesn't fit with that. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. Doesn't mean it isn't happening. We've got about no. two and a half minutes left, three minutes max. Uh, Bruce, thanks for coming on. It's flown by. I want to mention again, folks, uh, do check out Bruce. Check him out on Twitter. You'll find him. If you put Bruce or Fenton in, you'll find him, but I'll tweet Bruce out later on. Uh, do check out ancientnews.net and the book. You've obviously been listening to Bruce, so you know how fascinating he is. Check out the most recent book, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans. Came out last year, gave me a copy of it. It's a great read. I highly recommend it. Um, final question is, is an obvious one. How exciting then is it for somebody like yourself who's um, de- obviously dedicated so much time to this field of research. Now that governments and former presidents and others, including military people, now that they're seemingly fessing up on the existence of these anomalies, um, how exciting is that for you? These must be great times. Well, I'd say it's a yes and a no, isn't it? Because on the one hand, yes, it's very exciting that they are, you know, that this is becoming a, a global conversation, you know, that, that everyone is getting involved with it and there's gonna be more people looking into what's going on and i think a lot more data will be shared we're going to hear from a lot more experiencers and and pilots and you know all these people are going to start feeling able to speak and i think that's the one of the biggest positives is having the you know that kind of environment where it's no longer a big stigma and a shame to talk about this so i think we're going to learn an awful lot very quickly right on the flip side of course is i'm a suspicious person by nature you know and call me a conspiracy yeah, theorist yeah, I, yeah. I don't really care um but you know if i see the government and i see all this stuff happening of course you've got to, especially in the middle of the the pandemic and all the you know let's say it was not really a middle of a pandemic the middle of the lockdown global restriction madness right so we've got that going on now i don't think we can just separate them off and say that these are two coincidental occurrences now if you look back at um, Ronald Reagan's famous speech, I think it was at the UN, where he said that, you know, imagine if there was, you know, an external threat to this planet, how quickly we would all unite. Yeah. And that, that should ring an alarm bell in people's heads. Shouldn't it? Look at, right, look, look at it now. Look at the world. Has it ever been more fractured? Have we ever had more fighting going on? I mean, we've got all the, you know, the ID politics, you know, identity politics. Everyone's fractured over that. We're fractured over Black Lives Matter. We're fractured over um, lesbian and gay rights. Everything's falling apart, right? And then we've got, of course, the pandemic and the vaccines fighting over that. Now, how the hell is anyone going to bring everyone back together? Now, what can you think of? Is there anything amazing and extraordinary enough that could possibly bring people back together. I can't think of anything other than aliens, Brilliant. right? So isn't it convenient that so at the end of all this process, once they've got the this stuff all reeled out, you know, and the, let's say the terraforming process, and it's through terror, this terraforming process of a new earth seems to be underway. Uh, and then we're going to have this, you know, the order ab chaos of the secret societies, the order out of chaos. And of course, they've given us the chaos. So how are they going to bring back the order? And I, I do suspect that that's going to be part of what we see with this, that at some point they're going to, ask us to unify around this idea of that we are at one single earth in a cosmos of inhabited by other beings and that that's why it's convenient now i don't think this is just happening naturally because they could have brought out their 
bear in mind, some of these cases are 2004 and stuff. That's right. So Obama knew about those. They was, these, these were in the files when Obama was in, and yet he's acting like he's as surprised as everybody else. So look, they've had this information in their files for years. So why now? Why now? That's something to talk about next time. That, um, you know, that, 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 I suppose, coming religion aspect of it to mm -hmm. unite people. That's something we can get into. Bruce, very quickly, I've already mentioned one website. Is there anywhere else? First of all, folks, uh, if you are interested in this, and you should be, go and buy Bruce's book, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans. Is there anything, is there any other place you, pe people should go, any other website maybe I should have mentioned uh, briefly before we, uh, before we wrap it up? Well, I'd say very quickly, if people want to see the a short summary of my my book kind of material, there's um, a documentary on Amazon Prime, 780,000, Our Alien Origin Story. So they can check that out. Um, also, of course, yeah, the books are on Amazon. If they look under my name, they'll find those. Um, Twitter, as you know, I'm mostly active on there. I think generally trying to fall out with most people, having a difference of <laughs> opinion. <laughs> I don't seem to agree with the the main the mainstream opinion on anything these days, it seems. But um, they can find me there, Hybrid Human, sorry, Exogenesis HH. Uh, and my, you know, my, my website, BruceRFenton.com, but I, I really need to update it. I haven't done a lot to it lately. So, I mean, mostly I'm on Twitter, but yeah, check out the, the Prime video. That'll give them an overview of what I've been doing. And I'm currently writing a paper that will be, I hope, submitted for peer review. And that's to deal with this craft debris, the um, ostracized yeah, tech that we talked about, about yeah. before. So I'm, I'm going to put it out there for the scientists as well, just to show that it's not just, you know, woo-woo or in my head or anything like that. No, it's certainly is. And people, so, should to read that. people should read it. If you go to Exogenesis HH on Twitter, pinned to the top there is 780,000 Our Alien Origin Story. The link is, uh, is right there at the very top of Bruce's Twitter. Bruce, um, you're a real gentleman coming on at short notice to talk about that. I've loved every minute of it, mate. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Richie. And, you know, take good care of yourself and hopefully speak soon. Anytime you want. The door is wide open. Thanks, Bruce. That was Bruce Fenton, folks, author. Uh, and uh, Bruce has appeared on television programmes talking about these subjects. Love his approach to it. Uh, so I do. It's a, it's a real measured, calm, uh, reasonable, rational approach to what you can talk about, what you can prove, what's out there. Uh, check him out. Lovely to have him on the programme today. Lovely change of pace. Uh, thanks again to Belinda DeLucy as well, former Brexit Party MEP. Enjoyed speaking with Belinda earlier on. That's it for the week's programmes. As usual, thanks for your time and, and your consideration and listening to the guests that have been on. We will speak on Sunday morning at 10am. That's UK time, 10am. When I say we'll speak, I'll be on with Sunday morning melodies, playing a few tunes and having a chat about some of those songs. Shooting the breeze with you, nice and chilled, Sunday morning melodies. This is Bad Company, closing the programme out. Have a fantastic weekend. Speak real soon. Bye from me. Bye now.